This is an ABC podcast. Floodwaters for some in Victoria have receded, but for others, their houses remain underwater, making it impossible to clean up. I think a lot of us probably need... um, I mean, it's very hard to say. You can ring the numbers, you can get food parcels bought out and things, but we need the water gone. It's a necessary evil trying to get some sleep on a long-haul flight, and later we're going to hear how a couple in WA's Wheatbelt plan to turn an old Boeing 737 into a swanky Airbnb. If you hate aviation, we're not the place for you to stay. <laughs> I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadja Country. It's billed as Australia's longest shortcut, a sealed road that will cut through the heart of Australia, allowing you to drive from the west to the east or the east to the west, depending on which way you're going. When completed, the sealed highway will stretch 2,700 kilometres from Laverton in WA to Winton in Queensland, connecting communities in some of the most remote parts of the country. To date, parts of the road have been sealed, but there's a lot more work to be done. And as you'd imagine, this kind of road works comes with a hefty budget of one billion dollars. Prior to last night's budget, there were concerns that the Outback Way may not receive the funding to complete the work under a Labour government, but it was not the case. Helen Lewis is the general manager of the Outback Way and she joins me now. Now, Helen, I believe you've had good news. Were you relieved or was it what you were expecting? Well, we were both relieved because it was confirmed, um, but we did have some indication prior that uh, it was going to be okay. Um, however, of course, you know, it's always good to see it in black and white before we get too excited. So, yes, last night was a uh, terrific result with uh, now this project becoming a genuine national bipartisan project, um, and it's been 25 years in the making Um from um, consecutive governments and local government and state and territory governments. So it's, it's a, significant, a significant project for Australia. So tell us about, we'll, we'll talk about the budget first as we are, you know, post-budget. Sure. So what is the budget? What have you got? Yeah, so it's $678 million, which is added to the existing $400 million that we'd already secured prior to that. So the $678 million was allocated by the previous government in their March budget, and we're just very grateful and elated that the Labor government has brought that into their budget, um, and so the funding will carry on. Momentum and continuity of roadworks can can continue. Now, this project was a, um, an idea in 1997, I believe. It started off in Laverton as an idea. Uh, we're now in 2022. Tell us... What exists of the road and, and what work needs to be done? So 2,700 kilometres, we've got just over, between, it's about uh, just over 1,100. Um, we've just recently actually uh, um, marked it all out. So it's about 1,100 kilometres left to go. And uh, we've, uh, so that this funding will get very close to uh, finishing, if not finishing it. Um, and that's just dependent on efficiencies and um, and you know people yeah 
the work program basically and we have an investment strategy so we we are just each jurisdiction is responsible for their part and uh Bullier Shire will finish the Shire Road between Bullier and the Queensland Northern Territory border and they've only got about 76 kilometers to go um and then there'll be that'll be complete uh and then um Northern Territory have probably got at least um you know 400 480 sort of odd k's to go um, across their entire route 500 k's probably and then wa has got um that um you know sort of seven 700 k's so it's around that it's, it is around that 1200 mark but i think there's slightly less in the northern territory but yeah it's sort of because the northern territory just keeps punching out another 30 k's here and there so it gets done quite quickly and they're they're just charging on which is great Mm. You, you only have to look at a map. If you look at a map of Australia, you realise the mm. sheer enormity. You said it's a nation building project, but it, it truly is cutting through the heart of some mm. very difficult mm. terrain and, and connecting really remote communities. What's it going to mean in terms of accessibility for those communities? How will it change the communities? Well, it really just enables them to have continuity of services delivery. Um, you know, the big one is, I mean, I know it sounds Irish, but if you can leave a place, you'll stay. And so if we're having health providers and, and educators and you know, teachers and educational professionals um, re- re- actually going to these communities, if, if they know that they can leave to go and see you know, a sick family member anytime, 24-7, because it, regardless of weather, regardless of anything, they will stay far longer than currently because the road gets cut um, and they can't move. Mm-hmm. And so... People go out for the experience now and maybe say maybe stay six to seven, six to 12 months. But if you have a sealed road to your door that you know you can travel on day and night, regardless of weather, you're likely to invest maybe two or three years into a community. And that is going to deliver far better medical outcomes, build trust in the community and far better schooling outcomes. The other huge thing, which it's not really uh, talked about very much, and it's something that I've really acknowledged, is that, you know, the, the there's not a lot of choice. So a, a truck turns up with their supplies hmm. in these isolated communities and there's one brand of everything. So there's actually no decision-making occurring. Right. Even just simple, just with simple groceries. If people aren't enabled to actually make a choice for their own well-being of what they'd like, um, because there's minimal choice, it's it has a massive impact. It's a very deep problem, um, and uh, you know, by actually just having a sealed road and being able to provide, and also a lot of it is also canned or frozen, mm-hmm. and so. You know, it's not fresh food. Um, and so, again, that then leads to further health, potentially for health issues So over time. Uh, and then also it, it actually enables better health as well. In terms of industry, for the agricultural industry, mining industry and tourism industry, I'd imagine a sealed road is going to be a game changer for them as well, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's time saving is between 10 and 19 hours between east and west of Australia with this road and our modelling suggests over 50% of all traffic, all freight, will use the Outback Way instead of the Nullarbor. So Helen, in terms of those logistics, are companies thinking that through now in terms of their planning or is it too far away? Well, we would like to, we don't see any reason why this road cannot be finished in the next five years. Um, You know, with the rate in which Northern Territory can pump out at least 150 kilometres a year, um, sorry, the WA can 
can once they get going, they, they can roll it out at 150 k's a year. Um, and Northern Territory are also doing at least, um, you know, 50 to 80 k's a year. So you know, it's actually um, it's just really doable. And um, and so it's really we we really we we would like to think that freight companies are starting to think about it. And um, you know, we've we've linked up with Cube Bulk uh, Freight. Um, recently you know recently and and in the past and and you know they are looking at how they could actually utilize and access this this uh this route and looking at you know alternative um you know power stations and things like that so they can power their electric vehicles and electric trucks and all sorts of things wow. like they really are looking at this as a you know into the future so that's exciting but you know the national freight and supply chain strategy also needs to include this road um you know, as a critical road for for the distribution of product. What about tourists? Do you think that tourists will take to it as soon as they can? Well, yeah, I guess it becomes the Route 66 of Australia, um, which is a significant road. And, I mean, the landscape uh, is just so different right across. So, you know, you really are seeing some pretty majestic uh, areas of, of Australia and uh, it all changes quite a lot. It's undulating. It just it really is breathtaking so there's there's obviously going to be a brand it's a brand new tourism route it means that people can zigzag australia instead of just going doing the lap um it means that people can do the quarter of australia so that it divide you know enables people just to do um you know a quarter at a time um and you know for someone who wants to take a do a road trip it's a it's a really easy it'll be a very easy sort of 10 or 15 days travel so you east to west. So you reckon five years' time someone will be able to do that? Well, we'd like to think so, and we don't believe there's any reason why it couldn't. And I think, though, and what, what this road will actually deliver for Australia in regards to the green economy minerals that are required, uh, just the uh, the freight efficiencies, the ability to then get that to local manufacturing so we can make Australian products, um, the improvement in our health and education services in isolated remote communities. So, you know, all the... the this road delivers on so many of the government's policies that the sooner the better, frankly, for this road to be completed because that's when that's when we're really going to have a step change in regards to new mines coming on board, new industries, and then being able to access the supply of those materials that we need to make batteries locally to to actually fuel our own um, green economy. So. That there really is um, an imperative to uh, if they're really serious about improving the budget figures and and changing something and, and really injecting some fiscal um, you know improvement um, the the outback way and what it opens up uh, you know it becomes an imperative to 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 get it finished. Helen Lewis, the general manager of the outback way, thanks a million for talking to Australia Wide. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. Staying with the budget now, now, this budget was less about the city-country divide than previous budgets. Instead, it focused on increased access to parental leave, childcare, education, housing and improving connectivity in Australia. The economist at the Regional Australia Institute, Dr Kim Houghton, has looked at the details and he joins me now. Uh, before we get into the detail, though, um, Kim, the Institute received $5 million over three years. What are you guys going to do with it? 
Well, we're going to keep doing our public interest research work. We're the only independent think tank devoted to regional Australia, and we like to think we do research that helps build better policy, so we're going to continue that, that process. Um, we've also been, been uh, given a bit of funding to develop some more educational programs so that we can take that, uh, that, that research base and make it more available to people who want to be more involved in uh, creating a better sort of local and regional economy in, in their places. So we're looking forward to developing those programs and, uh, and testing them and, and rolling them out across regional Australia in the, in the coming two years. At first glance, there didn't seem to be much in the budget set aside specifically for regional and rural Australia, but you would have had a close look at it now. Who were the winners and who did miss out? Yeah, I think there was a lot of rhetoric going into the budget about cutting regional programs uh, because of budget tightness and whatever. Um, and look, depending on, on how you add things up, I think regions have actually done quite well. All of those things you mentioned in your introduction, housing, childcare, uh, learning options for students, school and post-school, they're all critical parts of, uh, of living and working in regional Australia and they're the real highlights of our uh, our, our approach, which is the regionalisation ambition, which, which seeks to lift all of those issues across regions. So I, well, we're really hoping that there'll be some spillover from improving all of those aspects of that social infrastructure. Uh, we're hoping that there's some spillover into regions. Um, I think there was a lot of uh, discussion going into it about, about cutting uh, sort of spending programs that related to infrastructure across regions. But when you look at it, there's still an, an enormous um, national government spend on regional infrastructure. Uh, there will be some, I mean, there are some regions, I think, that, are, that, that, that sort of stand out as being targets. I think but there is a real, there seems to be a real flavour in the budget about supporting the energy transition. So the uh, the energy regions in the, in the Hunter, in New South Wales, in central Queensland, they're earmarked for, for, for quite a bit of government support in making that transition. And there's also a lot of money in the budget uh, going forward many years to come uh, to, de- to develop re- uh, renewable energy uh, zones and, and uh, precincts in, in, in different states and also to develop new technologies like the, there's a number of hydrogen hubs I think, that, that have been uh, uh, picked out for, for funding as well. So there's, there's quite a bit of that sort of structural change and, and adaptation. The other big one, I think, which we weren't really expecting um, was uh, I think the number they've put on it is $3 billion to help uh, the communities that have been really hit hard by floods and storms this year. So there's a lot of federal government money going towards building and rebuilding infrastructure in regional Australia this time around. And the plan for one million houses in Australia, obviously housing is a massive issue in regional Australia. That sounds very ambitious. Do you think in terms of the regional part of that, can it be done? Well, we'd like to see at least a third of those uh, dwellings in regional Australia because that, that's where a lot of the, the, the needs are. Um, looking, looking within it, there, there's a little bit, there's a, there's a, there's a smallish, so I say smallish, there are numbers of 10 to 20,000 new homes that are funded through the program directly, uh, either through social housing providers or other means. Uh, and then there's an expectation that the states will, will match some of that. So that, that's where we get some of those numbers. But really the big uh, share of that million new homes is relying on some structural changes to make it more attractive for investors and developers to build houses in Australia generally, um, and, and particularly affordable houses, uh, and, and, and to do some of those in regions would, would be most welcome. We, we've looked a lot at regional housing markets. There's a lot of demand there. Demand's not the problem. It's been the, getting the right sort of mechanisms in place that enable them to those those 
meeting those demands to be a sort of viable commercial proposition uh, for investors and developers. That's where a lot of the, the changes need to happen. So I think some of that uh, National Housing Fund money may be going to you know, co-invest or support somehow to make it more, to co- cover some of the, uh, the, the gap, that, the commercial gap that might be holding back some of these developments in, in regions. And if that's made use of, uh, that, that could be a game changer for some places. So in terms of whether... Uh, parts of the budget that you were hoping to see, was there anything you were disappointed that wasn't there? Uh, just just one thing, and this is this is a sort of concern of mine in relation that we've, we've got in in relation to works workforce, and we know that housing is an, an equally important issue, but that has been getting more attention. The workforce one, the skills summit. I mean, there's a lot of understanding about the need to improve our ability to to learn and, and get qualifications. We've got another record, Sinead, of 93,000 job vacancies across regional Australia last month. It keeps going up. It started to turn down in the cities. It will start to slow in the regions at some point, but it hasn't yet. So we urgently need to rebuild the learning capacity in regions. That's good to see in the budget things around uh, encouraging employers to take on apprentices and and encouraging regional students to take on university degrees and what have you. What's really still missing, though, is some sort of commitment to say it's important It's important where that learning happens. I'd love to see some sort of commitment that, that actually says we are going to rebuild the ability to learn those skills in regions, whether it's vocational training or whether it's tertiary, because we see so much evidence now that if a, if a regional student completes their learning qualification in region, they are much more likely to practice in region. And that sort of spatial element of this learning package that's come out of the Skills Summit has has still been missing for me. I'm I'm looking for some confirmation that that is on somebody's agenda. Dr Kim Houghton from the Regional Australia Institute. Thanks for talking to Australia Wide. Thanks, Sinead. This is ABC Australia Wide. Let's head to Victoria's flood-affected Goulburn Valley, where residents in the worst-affected parts of Marupna say drainage issues on their streets have delayed the clean-up. While floodwaters receded within a few days in other parts of town, others like resident Rita Costa have been flooded for well over a week. She told our reporter, Rose Ritchie, that with so much water still around, she doesn't know when she can start the clean-up and return home. It's like we've just become part of the river system and in my opinion, we were the acceptable collateral of this entire event. That's Rita Costa, a single mother who lives on Lenny Street in Marupna in northern Victoria. A fortnight ago, storm water started pooling in Rita's street. Oh, look, there's street floods every time it rains in the dip in the road in front of my street. I've called council many, many, many times over the years to report the inadequate drainage that there is and that they were not able to cope with just regular rain capacity, let alone flooding. Three days after the storm water hit Rita's street, it was joined by huge volumes of Goulburn River flood water. Like many others in the neighbourhood, Rita's house was inundated. But while floodwater in Shepparton and Marupna mostly receded within a few days of the peak, Rita's house was underwater for more than a week. And while the rest of the community is focusing on clean-up, Lenny Street is still being pumped out. How do you clean up when there's not a spot on your property that's not submerged in water, when there's nowhere to even begin thinking about clean-up? It's, you know, the reality is even to salvage is difficult. Like, there's not going to be people that can save anything because by the time the water clears and the mould sets in, everything in our homes and everything we've worked all our lives for is going to be ruined. 
And what do you need right now, you and your neighbours? I think a lot of us probably need... um, I mean, it's very hard to say. You can ring the numbers, you can get food parcels bought out and things, but we need the water gone. This isn't the first time Marupna and Shepparton has flooded. The most recent major floods were in 1974 and 1993, but the past fortnight of flooding has been much worse. Rita and her neighbours banded together, canoeing to conduct welfare checks on people trapped in their houses and sharing information. She says it's brought out the best in people and the worst. People driving four-wheel drives up, that's pushing waves back into our properties, knocking down fences, you know, things that we had been deemed, like our neighbours I heard had made sure that their chooks were okay, but people driving through with creating waves, you know, have meant that I don't think that they have survived it. You know, like, we're lucky, all our pets, we got them out, but... Had we waited until the waters peaked, it would have been over my daughter's nose at the front of our house. So we're very lucky that we just got out when we did. At the moment, I'm just still getting notices not to flush my toilet. (laughs) Which I can't even get to yet. So It could be months before you're back in your home. Some of my neighbours have been told a year over a year and the homelessness problem and the housing problem in this area is already you know overstressed and the amount of people that are now displaced you know seeking alternative accommodation I don't know where we're gonna be you're with friends right now with family I'm lucky like I've had lots of beautiful people offer us somewhere I feel really blessed um that we've got our pets with us and you know we're really lucky that we're here you know like that's all you can be grateful for because you know some people didn't make it through the flood so it's just heartbreaking seeing how much everyone's lost it's not just me like everybody we've all just don't know what to do because at the end of the day they keep saying wait until you know get your stuff out on the nature strip there is no nature strip Rita Costa speaking to our reporter Rosa Ritchie in Marupna. And finally, we head to West Australian, to the West Australian Wheatbelt, where a family-owned air park is about to be transformed into the ultimate luxury stay. But it's one with a difference. If you're a fan of air travel and planes, well, it could be for you, because air park owners Andrew and Mary Cotterell are transforming a grounded Boeing 737 jet into a swanky place to stay. And the jet has been on quite a journey to get there. Wheatbelt reporter Sam McManus has the story. Just over 100 kilometres east of Perth, two massive Boeing 737-200 jets sit empty next to a dirt runway. The aircraft are owned by Andrew and Mary Cottrell, who run the White Gum Air Park just outside the town of York. The family-owned and operated business offers training flights and a place to stay for tourists, but soon there'll be a new and quirky place for travellers to rest their heads. It's something that not a lot of people get to do is stay overnight in a, in a Boeing aircraft. The husband and wife duo are one of just four Australian winners of a competition by US company Airbnb, which will see them receive $100,000 to transform one of these Boeing jets into luxury accommodation. I sometimes kick myself. <laughs> what were you thinking? 
but it it's it's been so gradual i guess it was never a, a plan from the start to do what we've turned out to do the digs will include two separate sleeping quarters two ensuite bathrooms and a lounge area at either end of the aircraft but why are the planes grounded in the wheat belt i hear you ask well the jets used to be owned by airline company ausjet which folded after just 14 weeks in 2006 they then sat idle at Perth Airport for close to a decade before the Cottrells decided to take them apart, shift them to their air park and reassemble them for tourists to visit. It's not a small item that you can just pull the bolts out and let it fall over. It's, you've got to be careful and do it right and safely and be able to put it back together again. The couple always planned to turn one of their jets into accommodation, but it wasn't until they saw the Airbnb competition that their dream became a reality. It was a bit of a process and we had to go through um, a culling process. So they asked for initially everybody's interests, um, your ideas, and they said the quirkier the better. The Airbnb money will certainly uh, bring this project forward, we reckon about 10 years before we would have been able to afford to do what we're going to have to do in the next 10 months to have it running in, uh, up and running by August. Mr Cottrell has some simple advice for those who are hoping to book a stay. If you hate aviation, we're not the place for you to stay. <laughs> Certainly not. Wheatbelt reporter Sam McManus with that story from the Wheatbelt, obviously, in Western Australia. And that's Australia-wide for this Wednesday. Remember, you can podcast the show whenever you want to. Head to the ABC Listen app and you can subscribe there. Um, I hope you have a lovely evening. I'm Sinead Megan. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.